What if you had a bank account for your time? If we were more time aware, what would you do differently? Do you keep track of how you are spending time? And are you finding time for what matters or maybe mainly focused on money? These are great questions that I'm hoping to explore. On this episode, I speak with Cassie Holmes. Cassie Holmes is the Associate Professor of Marketing and Behavioral Decision-Making at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. She studies happiness, highlighting the role of time. Her research examines such questions as how focusing on time rather than money increases happiness, how the meaning of happiness changes over the course of one's lifetime, and how much happiness people enjoy from extraordinary and ordinary experiences. Across these inquiries, her findings highlight the high level of happiness that stems from personally connecting with people and with the present moment. I have read a number of Cassie's wonderful papers and in-depth research projects. On this episode, we discuss how choosing time over money will make you happier, why experiential gifts are important, and how this coming weekend can be treated like a vacation. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Cassie, if I'm correct, you've been studying around the following statement rather deeply. And that statement I found amidst all of your wonderful work is focusing on time over money leads to happiness. What led you to spend your time and career thus far studying this statement I just said? Yeah, so I am professor at a business school and I actually got my PhD in a business school in marketing and I think traditionally the focus of business schools is to um, sort of measure success through sort of bottom line for businesses, namely profits. And then also for the individual students um, is measuring success through their financial uh, sort of well-being coming out of the um, program. And that's what a lot of business school students as well as businesses are sort of so focused on. And as a PhD student, um, sort of within this context, I um, felt that as a PhD student, I was very poor because we were sort of living on a stipend. Um, So money is very salient, both in terms of how little I had as a student and as well as the focus of um, the context around me. But the thing that I was also very constrained by was time. And, um, and then I, realizing that that is, of course, a sort of other supremely scarce resource. And I've come to, or I thought, and I've come to empirically unpack the fact that it's not only sort of similarly constrained, but it is even more important from an individual standpoint. And then they're thinking about employees and motivating them too. So that led me to sort of wonder, and also, as I was saying, I was a marketing student. So at that point, I was sort of under, trying to understand how do you motivate people to make particular choices and connect them with their products uh, or your products or your offerings 
Um, and in that context too, I was like, all right, there's so much focus on money and advertising, you know, how much money you'll save and how luxurious this offering is with a uh, sort of, I thought, too little attention on time, as in the time that it might save you or the time you might invest in it. So all to say, given all of that, I was like, I thought that time was sort of got less attention than it should have. And then that led me to sort of study it. What's the effect from initially from a marketer's perspective of drawing your consumer's attention towards time versus money? And I found that ads <laughs> that focus on time um, and even just thinking about the time you've spent with a product, say like your iPhone versus the money you spent on it makes consumers feel more connected to them. And then I laddered that up to, all right, how does that influence not only choices around, you know, consumer products, but also that people's choices in general of how they spend their time, you know, what, you know, life decisions, like what job should you take? What apartment should you choose? Those sorts of things. How should you be spending your weekends? And there I found that drawing people's attention towards time as opposed to money leads them to spend their time in ways that are more happy and fulfilling for them. And again, sort of, I was talking about the business school context of being so many focused, but even across the U.S., when my colleagues and I help Hirschfield and Uri Barnea in one of our projects, we asked the simple question to thousands of American adults, which would you want more of, more time or more money? Most people said they would prefer to have more money. So and we saw that it was around 65 to 70% of people said they would prefer to have more money. But those who said that they would prefer to have more time were statistically happier. And that's controlling mm. for how much time and money they have. Mm. Wow. So that makes me think about cultural relationship to time versus money. And I know that through some of my own experiences of traveling to different cultures outside of the U.S., that the degree of emphasis on one of the others changes, too, in different cultures. Yeah. And have you thought about other cultures? Are there any cultures that you've studied or anecdotes you've heard where that 70% might flip, where there's a culture that just really the majority values time? over money? Is there, is there, are there any out there to your knowledge that exist? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's actually a question that with the same set of colleagues we were talking about that we should explore because, so I'll just say no one has looked at that, like the, the relative value of time versus money across cultures. But anecdotally, you know, in, in traveling and going to like my favorite <laughs> places in the world, all tend to be cultures that I think that I gravitate towards them because of greater value for time and sort of time outside of work, namely Italy, Spain, <laughs> around the Mediterranean, yeah. um, the, south, the south of France, um, where there's, it's slower and there's a greater attention and appreciation towards sort of life's delights. So I suspect um, or my hypothesis would be that if we took that same question, which do you want more of more time or more money to different countries that we would get uh, sort of different uh, proportions in terms of answering that. But I suspect regardless of the proportions, you know, of the sort of descriptive of who says they would prefer or how many 
um, say they would prefer to have more money versus time. I predict that our finding that those who say they would want more time and those who value time over money would be happier. Mm. Yeah, that it reminds me, if you haven't seen the documentary yet, uh, I believe it's called Where to Invade Next. It was a Michael Moore film. And regardless of people's opinion of his filmmaking style, it, to me, it was one of the, the most surprising documentaries in his body of work. And he goes to other countries that have aspects of life figured out in terms of his perspective. And one of those categories is, you know, leisure, delight, and rest. And he goes to these, these places in Europe that you mentioned, specifically Italy, where he goes over there and talks about vacation, time off. And if, if I remember right, there's an example about a lot of very successful enterprises, big companies in Italy, and he speaks with some of their CEOs about how they allow for two to three hour lunches because they want their in, their employees to go home with their family because they they don't the leaders don't want to be deprived of that either. And right. he's talk he's talking to them about this. And as you're listening to them, you're like, of course this makes sense. Of course this is obvious. But then Michael Moore tells them about modern day statistics around you know the average americans working hours and lack of vacation time and these europeans almost seem appalled like why would you take this away from from humans so it's just so interesting that in today's modern connectivity how more of the western world hasn't woken up at least in my perspective to this topic uh, more i mean that's a big reason i'm producing this podcast and writing a book is to remind people that rest and leisure, and I like, I like your word, delight, is actually work, important work towards your well-being, your creativity, and other aspects that ultimately do impact uh, your work. Yeah, and I agree as well as sort of I'm exploring even more uh, directly these days, um, looking at the role of vacation and how and sort of why does one get sort of emotional benefits out of taking vacation? And as you noted, Americans take less vacation. Actually, we're the only developed country that does not have mandatory vacation or paid vacation. And even um, <laughs> for those who are given their vacation, they don't take all of it. So more than 50% of Americans don't use all of their paid vacation days. So not only are we not are we given less, but we also take less. Some sort of qualitative work into why people or why Americans aren't taking their vacation, as it suggests that it's because of money as well as time constraints. So they're you know going on vacation is expensive. They're concerned about missing out on that potential pay uh, at work, as and then time constraints that they feel like they can't take the time off even though they're sort of nominally, you know, allotted. And so in a project, which I'm really excited about, which is certainly a work in progress, but with Stanford DeVoe and Colin West here at Anderson, we're trying to figure out, is there a way that, you know, folks can reap the benefits of vacation, the emotional benefits, um, without sort of taking, having to spend additional time or additional money and because we analyzed um, the Gallup data, finding that indeed there's a question in there of 
to, to what extent do you prioritize uh, taking vacation? And we find that, you know, that's hundreds of thousands of respondents saying that it's significantly related to, you know, satisfaction in life and emotional well-being and stress. Wow. And so the way that we were trying to, or we're sort of approaching whether you can get those emotional benefits without spending additional time or money was noting that Americans, many Americans get and actually do take weekends off. And so that's time off. And we're like, all right, can we get those people to sort of optimize that time like a vacation? And so we ran an experiment amongst hundreds of people and randomly assigned them on a Friday. We told half of them, treat this weekend like a regular weekend. And we told the other half, treat this weekend like a vacation. Those are sort of simple instructions. And then, you know, they went off and spent their weekend however they <laughs> decided and wanted. Um, and then on Monday, we connected back with them and measured their happiness. And we found that, you know, controlling for the baseline happiness from Friday, that simply being told to <laughs> treat their weekend like a vacation made them happier on Monday. And then we replicated that and found that they were happier over the course of the weekend, not just on you know Monday when they returned. Um, and it seems to be because they became more attentive to the present moment. Well, the vacationers, I just sort of call them, even though it's the weekend, uh, <laughs> the vacationers, some of their behaviors were different than the non-vacationers, but what drove it was we also measured the extent to which they were sort of attentive and in the present moment over the course of the weekend, and that is what drove it. So it's almost like what we're calling a vacation mindset is simply treating it like a vacation so it gives you that space to be, <laughs> you know, yeah. and to relax and enjoy. And I actually, I think it's sort of mental relaxation, not actually, you don't necessarily need to sit on the couch all weekend. So maybe what you're saying, Cassie, is right now, as I'm approaching the end of the day on Friday, is that I should tell myself this weekend I'm going on vacation. Yeah. Like <laughs> totally. I love that. I looked in one of your very interesting papers and I found this diagram that had seven recommendations on how to be happier. And I'll take a moment for the listeners to read what those seven recommendations are. And it said, to be happier, focus on time, not money. Buy time, but not too much. Buy experiences, not things. Give a little time away. Savor life's ordinary moments. Fill weeks, but not hours, with variety. And lastly, spend time with loved ones. Those are all wonderful recommendations. I'm curious for you, Cassie, which one of those practices has had the biggest impact on you? Yeah, so I will say each of those recommendations are supported by huge projects that, you know, like each of those sort of took years to unpack. And yeah. so I feel connected to all those. It's like, what, who's your favorite child kind of thing? <laughs> but I actually think that the first one is of focusing on time even sort of in contrast, maybe it's in contrast to money, but just simply focusing on time because a lot of it sort of then flows into all of those other recommendations of when people I found in my work that when you focus people on time, they become more self-reflective and are more motivated to 
spend their time in ways that are happy and fulfilling for them. And on average across Americans, as well as for individuals, oftentimes what the source of happiness is actually spending time with loved ones. So you get that last one by focusing on time. Also, the, by focusing on time, it makes you more self-reflective and oftentimes it makes you realize just how precious that time is in realizing that time is precious and that it is because it's finite. And so um, my work that's looking at how age influences how we experience happiness as well as the types of experiences both lead to greater happiness, namely that when you realize as you get older and um, which is related to, but you can also activate this separately of when you realize that your time is finite, then you start to savor more and you start to sort of pull out the potential happiness from ordinary experiences. And you start to be more, again, more deliberate in how you spend your time. So therefore, often sort of leading people to connect with what really matters to them. And those are those people. So it all sort of, I think the first one, because it leaps out to impact, sort of activate all of those other ones. You know, we, we obviously don't know when we will die, but there's statistics and averages out there to where you could come up with some numbers to where you can give a framework for people to think about how finite it actually is. But it, I've always thought about, you know, a lot of us have seen the interface daily, weekly. The point is, is a high frequency of our bank account balance or a credit card balance, right? Like we look at that many, many times throughout a month, but we don't have an equivalent of like time balance, um, even though it would be an estimate because we don't know when we're going to die. But have you thought about ways where people can practices or a mindset practice to where people can have a, an equivalent experience of like just reminding themselves of how precious and limited that time is? There's a couple of things, and I haven't sort of played this out in uh, my research, but there's sort of time tracking. Um, so I'm going to be teaching a course, uh, or developing a course to teach our MBA students next quarter. It's applying the science of happiness to life design, uh, with one of the session or one of their assignments being to track their time for two weeks, because as um, you're observing and noting that. Our money, it's very concrete, like we see numbers associated, but our time feels a lot more fungible because we're, we're not quite as attentive to it. Um, but I am thinking that if people are led to track their time, almost like, you know, when people track their calories, they become more deliberate <laughs> in what they eat. <laughs> sure. um, if you track your time, then you become more deliberate in how you spend it, sort of noting those things that are actually sort of wasting time, that they're not giving you energy particularly they're a waste if they're you know, not making you happy and you don't really ultimately have to do it. And so sort of pulling out those pieces of one's you know, day-to-day slash week-to-week life to optimize that time frame. But I think the other piece that you're getting at is focus on lifetime, which is why I think my time activation has the effects that it does because it's making people think about their time more broadly and i know that you're i'm not really answering your question of you know what are ways that people can be reminded 
that their time is finite and that is passing is to make that time as concrete as money. So if you're thinking, for instance, you know, I have however many years left, that might sound like a lot when you turn it into dates, but if you're thinking, for instance, I have this many years left, um, but this many weekends left, and then this many weekends that I could potentially, you know, go visit my family or my friends, that starts, that number gets small pretty quickly. And if you're thinking, um, now that I have young kids, actually, I try to remind myself of this, is, you know, there's, you know, it's 18 years until they go off to college, but it's only maybe a couple more years until they, you know, when they still want to actually hang out with me. And so I, all to say that I think that there's value of counting <laughs> almost yes. and subtracting so that you realize that there actually is a far less time. Mm -hmm. I had a friend one time challenging, <laughs> challenge me on a exercise that was very sobering for me. And I was talking about how, you know, one of my fears is that my parents are aging. And, you know, I, I, I do travel a decent amount and enjoy the work I do. But I don't get to visit that often. And I actually he challenged me to do an exercise where if I considered the last two years, the pattern of the rate of which I did visit them, and then just calculate that into uh, the amount of dinners that I had, because that's really where I connect with them is sit down and, and share a meal together and talk for hours. When I broke the frequency of, wit of what I was experiencing of the last few years, and I mapped that ahead of, okay, let's, you know, they're in their high 60s. And let's say a miracle, they live to 100 years old. Well, it ended up being a very small amount. I think it was the number was something like 20 uh, or maybe even less than that. Let's say it was 15. Like I had like the yeah. very real realization of, the, of my current pattern. I have 15 dinners left with them. And that was like a, that is a very sobering moment that having done that exercise has changed my habits uh, in strategy and awareness of how I do plan to increase that frequency so that it's not just 15 times left. Right. Yeah. So while sobering, though, I would suspect that it's actually very powerful and beautiful because, sure, it sounds like you might try to increase the frequency, but I think that, uh, and what my research would suggest is the thing that it also does is really sort of increase the quality of each of those interactions so that you really you know, they, you realize you're, you're just more present in them, you're focused, you appreciate them more, and that savoring allows you to extract so much more sort of happiness from that. And another, um, as we're, you're sort of talking about ways of activating this, and I, but like, I certainly don't want this to be the case because I don't want these awful things to happen in the world, but you don't just have to think about you know, it's not just a re reminder of your own mortality, but realizing that shit happens, yeah. um, you know, particularly here in California right now and with the fires and people losing their lives, losing their homes and um, those reminders that, you know, what we have, 
is limited and it's uncertain. You know, there's averages of how, you know, how long we'll live, but certainly we don't know. <laughs> Those reminders, uh. I think, or not I think, have, have been shown empirically to also sort of increase that realization of time being precious and then you get all these positive consequences and downstream effects of realizing time is precious in terms of how we spend our time and our mindset during that time to optimize it. You're right. And as you were saying all that, I did reflect on when I did realize, you know, it was sub 20 dinners left or so as an estimation with my parents, I was just literally there back visiting with them last weekend. And I used to enjoy the verbal sparring of talking politics because I'm more on the progressive side and kind of a techno optimist in terms of where machines and automations are going, whereas they're much on the other side of this spectrum of being very conservative. And I used to like hold my ground in my beliefs, but I altered that to where I just, I'm just curious of who they are and what, why they see the world that way. And I don't challenge it. I just ask questions about it and, and no agenda to try to disrupt them or change them. And I found that the general sense of love and positive feeling had, in, had been increased, which ultimately made me feel better about it because I felt more love in that situation. Whereas previously I'd pushed my agenda more on trying to convince them to be a different way. And that sort of changed a bit when I realized like, you know what, it doesn't matter. Like I, if I only have 15 of these dinners left, I'd rather it be us laughing and enjoying each other and having eye contact versus uh, people's emotions getting all festered up because I'm trying to compete in a political discussion. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I came across your work after looking into the words time affluence, and I had never seen those two words next to each other before, whether you associate with that word time affluence, is that a category that is an area of study in psychology? Did I come across bad internet information when I, when I found that? Does, does that word time affluence mean anything to you? Yeah. I like the word because it's sort of pulling these ideas around that typically are associated with money, <laughs> yeah. of, you know, like how much you have and the, with that sort of suggestion that if you have more, then it's a good thing. So when you think about time affluence, it's like, oh, I have more of this good thing. I think an interesting question that is up there is, you know, does that mean that more time is better? Because certainly more money would be better. <laughs> it could always be better. Mm -hmm. But is, you know, is more time always better? We're actually investigating that question now, looking at the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their life satisfaction. The reason that time affluence has actually sort of popped up um, is because of there's also this term out there called sort of like time famine. <laughs> <laughs> and being temporally impoverished of the sort of sense that, um, you know, Americans, as well as folks sort of throughout the developed world, as well as world in general, sort of have too little time that they're, you know, with all the stuff they have to do, they, they feel like they need more time and they're suffering from having too little time. 
Um, with the, and then this idea of like, is more time better as to being time rich? And what we have found in looking at that relationship between discretionary time and life satisfaction is that, yes, having too little time is bad. So being time poor is bad. It's associated with less life satisfaction, and that makes sense. It makes you stressed. Um, you don't have the time to spend on ways or in ways that make you happy. But what we also found though, is that more time isn't always better. We actually see a negative quadratic relationship. So that means that it's sort of like an inverted U. So too little time is bad, but also after a certain amount of discretionary time, too much time can be bad. We were sort of unpacking like, <laughs> how could one have too much discretionary time? And it seems to be undermining when people have too much discretionary time that they, start to feel a lack of purpose and meaning and productivity, um, which undermines their senses or life satisfaction. And so interestingly in our data, um, so we've looked at uh, sort of employed Americans across the US using the national study of the changing workforce data. So it's tens of thousands of people as well as American time use data, which is also tens of thousands of people which sort of tracked uh, Americans of how they spend their time. And how they feel. And so you see that for employed folks, uh, the tipping point is around three hours of discretionary time uh, mm. in a work week day. That more than that isn't good or isn't better and um, can actually start being sort of too much time. But I will say, I suspect that. I suspect many of your listeners, as well as um, because the folks that I'm surrounded by in my professional life and life life, is that we all sort of, not we all because there are distributions, but many of us, I am on the side where I feel time poor and are sort of suffering the consequences of that. So this sense of being sort of affluent with um, time is a sort of lovely luxurious thing of oh my gosh this idea of like having time that i could actually you know spend <laughs> how i want yeah. yeah you know the concept of i've been reading a lot into a area of overwhelm like that that feeling of overwhelm whether it's i don't have enough time or i have too many tasks on my plate or i've committed myself to too many things yeah. Step stepping away from that for a recharge and the you know the many versions of what that is, whether it's a, a sabbatical or just a habit change, is very very interesting to me. The one of the seven recommendations, Cassie, that I was intrigued by was fill weeks parentheses but not hours close parentheses with variety. Variety is a topic that's been brought up multiple times on the podcast from different guest you know kevin kelly from wired magazine talked about project-based work and the benefits of having a change of variety of the actual project you're working on but then also you might be working on some something very intellectually intense and then change to something very labor intense and that sort of dance between the variety having benefit and him recommending to other professionals to experiment with that when you say fill weeks with variety, what does that mean? And why is it essential for happiness and quality work? Yeah, so in that project, we were looking at whether uh, sort of in your activities, 
in your day-to-day, -day, whether they should be more varied or more similar. And so we ran a bunch of studies basically looking at is more variety better because with the idea of variety being good because it helps offset hedonic adaptation. So this uh, notion that we are as humans are adaptive creatures, right? So that's really good when bad stuff happens because we can adapt to it. But what it also means is that we adapt to good stuff and we get used to it and we stop paying attention to it and we get bored over time. So the thing that research in that sort of domain of hedonic adaptation has found is that when you take breaks, then it will sort of re-engage you, as well as there was this hypothesis that if you increase the variety, um, and it was shown like in, you know, listen, um, eating jelly beans, as well as listening to little segments of music, that when there's more variety, then it actually offsets hedonic adaptation because you like continually, you continue to be engaged and to pay attention. And so in our work, we looked at activities that were sort of self-defined by our participants. And looking, first we looked at the relationship that we asked, you know, how many different activities have you done over the last day, week, month? And then we also went down to half a day and hours. Um, and what we found was more variety is good if you've got a, a day or longer. So having variety in your activities across your days, across your weeks and months. Um, and as people reflect on that variety and even focus on it. So if, you know, however they spend their time, if we have them focus on the differences across those activities, you get the positive effect of variety. But interestingly, we found that when you get to less than a day, you like a half a day or hours or, you know, a half hour, that actually more varied activities and more dissimilar activities actually leads to less happiness and satisfaction. And um, it seems to be because by trying to do too many different things, you sort of get this sense that you're not actually accomplishing anything. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost this notion of you know, multitasking. When you're trying to do too much, then you end up doing nothing at all. And so we found that there was that sort of critical the sort of break point was a day more than that it's variety's good less than that variety's bad and also interestingly we saw this effect sort of pop up we took when we framed a day as long versus short or actually we did it in the context of a spring break so amongst college students um we framed their week-long spring break as long as in you know like a week out of a month or as short a week out of a year and you saw that there, when they viewed there to be variety within their spring break, when it was perceived as longer, it was good. But when it was perceived as shorter, then it actually was bad. Wow. I want to take a left turn a little bit. And we've been talking about a lot about time. But you also have done a decent amount of research and opinion on gifts experiential gifts over material gifts yeah why, why is the experiential better than the material yeah so this actually um, touches on one of the seven recommendations of to buy experiences rather than things because there's a big body of work or sort of a, now it's been growing and i love this work looking at the happiness that follows from buying experiences like 
going out to dinner, vacations, going to a concert, you know, doing a lesson, you know, cooking lessons, etc. Going to the movies even versus things, which tend to be, you know, electronics, jewelry, clothing. Research has shown that people extract greater happiness and greater lasting happiness from experiences versus things uh, for a variety of reasons. And in terms of gifts, we wanted to see not only whether um, purchases for yourself experiences um, that were better, but also in receiving or giving experiences. How does that, what effect does that have? And we found that recipients of experiential gifts feel more close and connected to their gift giver compared to the recipients of material gifts. And notably, material gifts are sort of the more typical gifts that are given when we ask, when we surveyed folks and we asked, what was the most recent gift that you gave? 80% of people were likely to have given a material thing, which makes sense because you don't want to show up to a, a birthday or someone's house for dinner empty-handed, so you want to bring something even though what we've found again is that you know have you given them a gift certificate to a restaurant or taken them to a concert or to the movies or you know tickets to a movie that those make the recipient feel more connected to you is that because of some underlying reality that it's it's all about that connection with another human being versus a piece of plastic or an object that is, is more difficult to connect with? Yeah, part of it is that it doesn't, so for giving experiential gifts, you don't actually have to go to that dinner with them. Simply buying them the dinner makes them feel more connected to you. And I think it's because they're sort of thinking of you during that experience. And mm. the reason that we are, I'm sure it's multiply determined, but the reason we found support for the benefit of experiential gifts is because they are more emotionally intense while consuming them. A lot of material things, you can highlight the experiential aspect. And we have some studies that show simply highlighting the experiential aspect of a material thing can actually get the benefits of an experiential gift. So we had one study, for instance, where we had folks give their friend a coffee mug, but the mug, what it said on a, it was either coffee mug or it said on your coffee break, and those who received the coffee break mug actually felt more connected because it was like the idea of like using the mug and enjoying the coffee, you know, like every day, as opposed to just that thing that's going to sort of sit in your cupboard or on your desk. So you can frame gifts that sort of have material qualities as more experiential and get the connecting benefit. In a way, that's analogous. I like that. I like the coffee mug, the one saying, enjoy your coffee break is analogous to what your point earlier of if, imagine if everyone started using instead of weekend, it was called, you know, your vacation. Mm-hmm. And it, it changes the experience of it just by the prompt and the, the phrasing of it. Yeah. Do you believe in the value of time away from work, time off? And second question, what does time off look like for you personally? I totally believe in the value of time off, as I was talking about a relationship between discretionary time and life satisfaction, seeing that so many of us are overworked and have so little discretionary time. And there's our work shows that having more time when you're on that side of that distribution is better by freeing up that time to spend it in ways that are happy and fulfilling for you. 
but I actually think that based on actually the vacation project that I mentioned earlier, that it's not just about how much time you have, it's really how you fill that time, both in terms of what you're doing, but I think even more so in terms of your mindset. You know, there's the time off and then there's the time off. Like, you know, there's the time that I go home at the end of the day after work to my family and I have, you know, kids and that time off feels very different when I'm there and I'm like, and I realize that it's precious. I realize that, you know, those evenings are numbered um, where we're all together. And so I'm not trying to rush through to get back, you know, on my computer and catch up on emails at the end of the evening that I am just fully, fully there with them. So it's that mindset of being present in whatever it is. And so in terms of how I spend my discretionary time, it has changed since I have, you know, my little ones, but it is all about those ordinary moments of those finding, not even finding those spaces, is creating those hours of, you know, like at the, you know, today's Friday, I'll go home and um, my husband and I, you know, we put our, leave our cell phones at the door and it is just time together open a bottle of wine the kids are running around probably there will be a dance party in the kitchen and it's become a very uh, sort of seemingly mundane and boring life <laughs> but it is just so heart filling and wonderful and i had you know has shifted from like what's super fun now it is like with my family with a glass of wine my really good friends my glass of wine um whereas you know before it was there was wine and good friends um but we were probably out doing something a little more exciting but my research has shown that actually not only the types of experiences from ordinary extraordinary shift with age but even the way we experience happiness and so i found that there's a shift like for younger people it's more about excitement as you get older, it tends to be more about that sort of calm, calm contentment. And so that work is actually based off of looking at the blogosphere. So anytime someone says, I feel or I'm feeling happy, we analyzed it. So we had millions of expressions of emotion and we analyzed the content of those expressions of happiness. And you see this shift, like amongst 20-year-olds, it's more excitement. Amongst 30-year-olds, you actually see equivalent. There's this balance, or maybe it's a conflict. I like to say a balance of both excitement and calm. When you get to 40s, 50s, 60s, there's this increasingly less is excitement about happy, or happiness about excitement, and it's more about that contentment. And so being in my late 30s, I am definitely <laughs> in the sort of content, calm, content, happiness is my source of goodness. Well, you said that it is a little dull and boring, but dance parties in the kitchen sounds kind of exciting to me. I know what you're talking about. But there was something you said that I think is worth spotlighting. And you said that when you do get home this evening, you and your husband leave your, your phone or phones at the door. And that might seem like, oh, we all set our phones down. But I think like intentionally saying, I'm not going to let, this device which most of the world is, is screaming at you on it because it you know it's very few people care about what we have on our agenda it's not that they're evil it's just that 
you know, people are sending messages all the time. There's an endless infinity pool stream of content and Twitter feeds. So, you know, sort of putting that distraction away so that you can deeply enjoy that glass of wine and laugh with your kids or bust a move in, in the kitchen uh, is in a way like time does, does time feel like it's slowing down for you when, when you have those moments in your kitchen on Fridays? Yeah, it's slowing down and sort of filling up, but by, from the good stuff and not the outside stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can describe it as slowing down, but actually that's not how I um, conceptualize it. I view it more as sort of carving out, like I create the space mm. that gets filled out and up as opposed, and, and I think it's important to carve out that space um, mm -hmm. because as you said, there's this endless inundation of potential stuff from the outside that all sort of reaches us through this tiny little device called a phone, you know, or the computer or the TV. But um, so it's the a sort of carving out and the pace within that space might be slower. It might be, I don't, I'm, I don't know. I'm sort of less sensitive to the pace. I'm more sensitive to the existence of that time. Sure. I'm curious. I like this little exercise of let's imagine I had the ability to, through some computer code, send a push notification to everyone in the world with a smartphone right now. So no matter where they're at, they're going to get a push notification on their phone. It would show up either on their lock screen or if they're on their phone, it would you know, pop up and interrupt what they're currently doing. And I'm going to grant you the ability to put a sentence or two in that push notification for all of humanity with a smartphone to view. What would you say given that opportunity? I would ask the question. So my, it would say, is what you're doing right now worth your time? And the question mark, if not, go do something that is. Wow. Yeah, I need that. I need that push notification about every 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so do I, right? Even though I'm like hyper thoughtful about how I spend my time because this is all I study and preach and teach. But, you know, we all, we all need that reminder. It's like, mm. is it really worth it? If not, go do something that is. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a frequent assessment to understand the essentials that, that matter to you and let go of the things that aren't bringing that value or maybe holding you down. So where can we find all of your wonderful research or dive deeper into some of the topics you've studied, whether that's the concept of focusing on time for more happiness, time, affluence, experiential gifts, all of this wonderful work that you've done and continue to do, where's the best place to find this? Um, well, I have my faculty webpage. Um, so if you went to that, it's uh, Cassie McGillner Holmes, but I think you could find it with just Cassie Holmes at Anderson UCLA. I actually don't know if that's what it is, but if you, in the wonderful Google, <laughs> that is Google, sure. um, Cassie Holmes and Anderson, um, you'll find my webpage and that has all of my research papers and and it's the way that you can find out more about sort of what we've been talking about. Awesome. 
Well, Cassie, I hope that in a few hours you are dancing your face off in the kitchen. <laughs> and I'm going to try to do yeah. the same tonight. I'm cooking dinner with some friends here okay. about an hour. So I'm going to take some turn of the on, advice. Yeah, turn on the Ask Alexa to turn yeah. on Best Ofs. <laughs> okay, Best Ofs. I like it. Right. Wonderful. Well, thank you for helping me understand these topics better. And it's an important practice for me. And I've learned a lot from you today. And I know the listeners have as well. So there's much to put in practice from this conversation. And thanks for your research. And most importantly, thank you for sharing this time with me. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks to Cassie for her comments and her research. I hope that this conversation inspired you to become more time aware. Maybe put more thought into how you balance out time and money pursuits. I really appreciate you listening, and I will be back very soon talking to you on another episode. Time off. Rest well.